Greetings, everyone. This is Peter Diarga with another episode of the interviews that we're doing for the Y2K and Autobiography podcast. Our guest today is going to be interesting. Michael Manelli, Executive Chairman of Zien Group. And I'm going to read his bio. I've never done that before, but I can't decide which would be the highlights. Alderman and Sheriff Professor Michael Manelli, uh, FCCA, FCS Honorary, FBCS, Executive Chairman, ZN Group. Now, that's just the start. Michael is a qualified accountant, securities professional, computer specialist, management consultant, educated at Harvard University and Trinity College in Dublin. He gained his PhD at the London School of Economics, where he is also a visiting professor of innovation in IT. His career spans scientific research, accountancy firm partner, and director of Ministry of Defense Research. During a spell in merchant banking, Michael founded Zien in 1994, the city of London's leading commercial think tank to promote societal advance through better finance and technology, particularly famous for its global financial, green finance, and smart cities indices, as well as its technology and financial research. Michael chairs Zien. The reason I'm having trouble is that Z slash Y-E-N, Z slash Y-E-N, is non-executive editor of a listed firm and regulator, fellow of Good Enough College, and past master of the Worshipful Company of World Traders. You might explain what that is. Michael is emeritus professor and life fellow at Gresham College, where he created the Long Finance Initiative, asking, when would we know our financial system is working? His third book, The Price of Fish, A New Approach to Wicked Economics and Better Decisions, won the Independent Publisher Book Awards Finance, Investment and Economics Gold Prize. Michael is an alderman and sheriff of the City of London, 2019 to 2021. Uh, you can see why I read that off. Picking out the highlights would have been impossible. So, Michael, I don't know how you're going to top the intro in your uh, answers to the topic, but... Say hello, and then ask the basic question, what were you involved in before Y2K? Well, hello, everyone. And thank you, Peter, for that very generous introduction. It's most kind. And thank you, too, for spelling out the name of our firm. With a name like that, we deserve what we get. Um, anyway, um, yeah, what was I involved in before Y2K? Well, you sort of said top that. And one of the oddest bits is that at one point in my life, I brought out the first commercial digital maps of the world. Uh, but what did I do before Y2K? Well, originally, back in the early 70s, I was a researcher in aerospace and guidance systems at Martin Marietta. I was, in fact, working on the Pershing, one of the Pershing systems uh, for the ICBMs, and also on something called SSDM, which later became Patriot. So I was deep as a kind of a, a teenage nerd having a time of my life uh, playing around with equipment. I then moved up to the Harvard Laboratory for Computer Graphics and Spatial Analysis. Uh, this is a, a laboratory which had a huge influence on a whole variety of topics uh, ranging from the very first walkthroughs of architectural uh, systems. So we were looking at planning, for example, uh, Boston's town hall. We we were a huge influence on things like computer vision and intergraph, where some of the code that I wrote wound up in those. And even today, many people in the geographic information systems field will know of ARC and ESRI, uh, which are the well, is one of the leading, if not the leading, GIS system. Uh, and all of these things were either influenced strongly or came directly out of that laboratory. 
And that got me into cartography and architecture. And then in 1979, I succeeded in convincing a firm in Switzerland, now part of IHS Market, which was about 500 people, but it was also the second largest private map producer in the world, that what they really ought to do is try and make money selling the data that underlay the digital maps. So while there were a number of mapping systems, data was extremely scarce. We created Mundocart and Geodat. Uh, Mundocart was a, an attempt to digitize the world at a scale of one to one million, and Geodat was uh, to fill that in at one to 250,000. And we completed that entire system in under four years, which at the time, uh, for example, over here in the United Kingdom, the Ordnance Survey was claiming they might finish the one to 50,000 series of Britain by 2006, but they were running five years late and they were expecting it in 2011. And I'm talking 1980, and we finished all of that by 1983. So it's really quite a fun project and made quite a bit of money. But uh, as that project came to an end, I looked at what I might do next and I discovered the City of London and Financial Systems, which were relatively undercomputerized. And in those days, to be in architecture mapping systems, you were looking at huge data sets of vi uh, visualization and graphics that nobody else was using. Uh, and some very complicated things. So the city was actually fairly easy. Um, I also took out a job uh, with British Leyland also as it was transiting to Rover to head up uh, some of their automotive guidance systems. But anyway, about 1986, I decided I'd move completely into the city and uh, I, I joined a firm called uh, BDO, Binder Hamlin. And what I wound up doing in a few years was uh, I, I moved in directly as a partner and then rose to being one of the six senior partners. And then in fact, uh, ran a large chunk of the global consultancy operations. And it was at this point, uh, coming back to our tale, the Ministry of Defense was a client of mine, uh, really from 1998. And BDO Consulting merged with Arthur Anderson uh, I was uh, quite vociferous in saying I, I wasn't pleased with merging with the firm and that it might well go bust, another story for another day. But in 1994, I joined the MOD as Corporate Development Director of the Defense Evaluation and Research Agency. Um, and I was based down in Far Farnborough, and DERA, as it was called, uh, was, was actually 40% of UK government R&D, all in one unit. And at that same time in 1994, a group of people who'd worked for me uh, left BDO and set up Zien. So that brings us up to uh, our Y2K point. Fascinating career, Guy. I, what was your primary skill set? What drove all of those activities? Uh, impatience, I think. <laughs> I, was, I was a horribly impatient child, and I still am. Uh, and I had very little intellectual fear of things. I, I felt if you wanted to learn something, you just went in and do, did it. And as an example, um, in 1974, my high school, remember we're talking about an interesting period where I can't imagine there were more than eight or 10 high schools that actually had a computer. And I was going to a high school in Florida at that time. And the uh, mathematics and physics uh, teacher was a fellow by the name of Bill Joseph still alive today. And Bill had gone out and purchased a PDP-8. And the PDP-8 was at that time the, the cost of a Volkswagen, brand new Volkswagen. And Bill bought it, but of course it was an enormous machine to stick in your home, especially if you're a bachelor. So he said to the high school, if you keep the machine and pay for all the power, 
I'll start a computer programming course. Well, I was uh, 14 and Bill was, as you can imagine, overwhelmed by uh, nerds like us all wanting to be in the course. And the entry to the course was a test. Here is a telex machine. Here is the manual for the telex machine. Here is a soldering iron. You know nothing about computing. If you can figure out how to make this 5-bit dot code telex machine talk to this 8-bit PDP-8, you can come on my course. <laughs> very few people made it onto the course. Many, very few people today would be able to do that. So what got you into Y2K? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Y2K, uh, frankly, w w was just a well-known problem. Uh, and I think it was one of these things where, you know, as, as programmers, we knew that we were, we were creating a kludge, but we also felt that things would be replaced uh, quite, quite soon. So any programming application that you wrote, you assumed would be replaced in a few years. So what was the point in trying to design it? And especially when the cost of memory uh, and the cost of computational speed came up, you thought this is a this is a reasonable uh, workaround or shortcut to take. I must say uh, we we had that on the PDPA. Remember uh, when I go to work in uh, in Mark Marietta, I'm working on IBM and MVS, which are again the systems in those days. We were we were looking at trying to squeeze guidance systems into 4K of code. Um, so you had to you had to do a lot of kludges, and in fact, you know, the whole concept behind hacking was you were extremely good at, get, at getting these things down. And I remember, in fact, a, a particular case, which was in 1979 when I was working on the mapping systems. Um, I was desperately trying to make those endure, uh, but the, the powers that be felt that the cost that was going to be incurred in doing four proper digits over time just wasn't worth it. And they always talked about it when it would be replaced, which all seemed so far away in the 70s. It was, you know, it was a good 20, 25 years away. And surely when we do this right, the next time we'll use a proper database. Surely when we do this the next time, uh, we won't be doing it in a mixture of Assembler or Fortran. We'll be doing it in a proper programming language. It's just interesting how often those next times never came. Yeah, I think, you know, looking back, I mean, I was there back in the day writing programs with the same type of constraints and stuff. And while we were using the two-digit years and we knew it wouldn't work, we simply had no clue as to how software would evolve over the years. If you'd asked me if the thing I was writing today was going to be still used two years from now, I would have said, you're, you're, you're crazy, you're nuts. And yet, that's exactly what happened is that software never died. It just morphed. It was patched, it was kludged, and it became a black box, and it just perpetuated itself. It's, it's fascinating stuff. What were the national security risks associated with Y2K that you were involved with or that you knew of at the time? Well, back in uh, 1994, I had come into a fairly senior position uh, within the Ministry of Defense. I was a civilian, clearly, but it was the equivalent of a major general or rear admiral, it was a two-star rank. And we were paying attention to these issues. And in the UK, there was a briefing for parliamentarians in December 1996, and it said that the potential implications of the millennium date and the earlier failure of the main computer and software companies to, to compensate for it 
and the lack of awareness and preparation in the industry raised great concerns uh, in government circles. And it wasn't just in the UK, in the US, uh, the problem gained prominence, I would say in early 95, and many organizations set up year 2000 compliance programs. I specifically remember um, the New York Stock Exchange did one um, before I think 96, and it had already cost it $30 million. So there was a lot going on in this space. Uh, in the UK, um, there was a survey of over 500 public and private sector organizations. And what it found is what you and I were just talking about, Peter, 70% of the IT managers were fully aware of the problem, but only 15% of senior managers were, and only 8% of organizations had actually conducted any kind of audit. Uh, now the awareness began to grow uh, really in 1996, and I'll talk about that later because that's where I had a bit of a hand in what was called Task Force 2000. Yep. But we saw um, that this, this was very, very much a, a real uh, issue. And as far as government IT systems are concerned, I think it was in June 96, a number of us uh, within a variety of departments, but to be frank, the MOD was probably the most senior of them, uh, got the deputy prime minister to write to all government departments to get their current position. So there was uh, quite a bit going on. And I think it was roughly in late 96 that the Central Communications and Telecommunications Agency formed a year 2000 public sector group. Um, the other thing that was helping in a sort of a sad way was that there were some genuine early scares. So uh, there was an aluminium plant in Western Australia that just uh, failed uh, catastrophically, really. A lot of machinery was ruined. Uh, Chrysler tested their rollover at Sterling Heights, i.e. rollover meaning that they, they tried to set the clock to uh, midnight on 1999 and the security system shut down and wouldn't let anybody in or out uh, and the time clock systems failed and the Chrysler chairman said we got a lot of surprises uh, there was a legendary uh, thing that had happened uh, back in the very early 90s which was Marks and Spencer uh, the great British retailer had a stock control that decided that 90 year old beef was uh, needed to be thrown in the bin uh, and it was and then there was an incident in America where a woman, uh, Mary Bander, I think was her name, she's 104 years old in 1992, and they tried to send her to nursery at the age of four. Um, so all the, these were real cases, but this then got picked up into some other types of scares as people began to realize that um, programmable logic controllers uh, were, were at risk. So that meant everything to do with shop floors and manufacturing, uh, elevators and lifts, uh, was potentially at risk. Uh, then people began to latch on to the flight control systems, or more accurately, really, I think if there was a danger, it was probably more in the GPS uh, position, global positioning systems. So all of this was, was going on. And then very, very finally, uh, we began to realize that there was a big issue to do in finance. And the issue in finance was one which slowly grew upon us in the Ministry of Defense. The Ministry of Defense, like all government departments, can be very acquisitive about problems because problems justify budgets. But in this particular case, we went and spoke, I did personally, went and spoke with very senior people in the city of London, in the banking, insurance, exchanges, sectors. And when I was speaking to some of these board members, I was stunned at their lack of awareness, uh, to some degree, their lack of awareness of their dependence on, on information technology and telecommunications, but also their lack of awareness of the problem. And the scenario that 
frightened us most in a national security uh, sense was what would happen if in January 2000, a whole bunch of statements went out for pensions or insurance or investments, and they were all wrong. Well, you say, well, okay, these things happen. We've all had problems over the years with statements, but you had roughly everybody failing at the same time with a lot of interdependencies. So my pension fund in turn depends upon the asset manager and the fund manager providing information to it. So you could see the opportunity for proliferation of misinformation throughout the system. And then you might have two weeks to reprogram it. And if you got that reprogramming wrong, well, then loss of confidence in the entire nation, in people's savings, uh, in their retirement was, was, was really at risk. And oddly, I must say in the UK, and I'm not too sure it quite worked the same in, in other jurisdictions, but in the UK, we were very, very concerned about our reputation as a financial center alongside airplanes falling out of the sky, possibly, which was an exaggeration, or people getting stuck in elevators and lifts, or um, all sorts of things to do with stock control. In Canada, we our banks are coast to coast to coast. In other words, we have you know CIBC, and it'll have branches across all across Canada. And in the 1990s, we had a couple of situations where one of the banks, their ATM machines would go down, but they'd go down for two or three days. And the first day, it's sort of whining by consumers. By the second day, it's hitting the newspapers. And by the third day, Parliament's talking about it. You know, we don't tolerate uh, outages in our finance system for very, very long. Two weeks would be catastrophic. And when we actually looked, and you're well aware of this, at how long it took the finance companies to fix the problems that they found, if they had left it to the end, we would have had it. We would have had a disaster. Thankfully, finance companies were the ones that were on this faster than most. Out of all of the stuff that you've just mentioned, what were the primary concerns? In other words, the top couple that really had people paying attention to this? Well, Peter, you make, you make a great point, actually, about the, the ATMs. And in fact, uh, uh, nearly a decade later, in 2008, it's what galvanized the government here was uh, to, to take action during the financial crisis is what happens when the ATMs uh, don't, don't spew out the money. Um, so, so, so that was there. I think the, the biggest thing that got people going here was industry uh, get, getting together quite quickly. So we formed something over here called Task Force 2000 with a, a good friend of yours, Robin Gennier. And the origins of Task Force 2000, as far as I recall them, was Robin, uh, who was a barrister, sitting down with me, who was representing MOD, with uh, another great guy by the name of Rob Virtsis, who was then the head of the Trade Association, the CSSA, the Computer and Software Services Association. And the three of us sat down in a West London club and began to discuss the issue. Uh, as I said earlier, I was a bit sanguine almost about it because I was sort of saying, well, it's obvious. We just need to get around to solve it. And as a programmer, I understand it. Rob was very concerned about the reputation of the industry. What, would there be some comeback? Would there be liabilities? How could he present it and put his members in a good light and not make it look self-serving? And Robin was actually, in the very early days, 
quite concerned with who ought to be sued for it, which was kind of, which was kind of amusing. Um, but we quickly got to the point where if you take a classic, here's a big risk, you look at typically four things. Do I avoid it in some way? Is there some way I can just get out of the situation? No. Uh, can I pool the risk? And I'll come on to that in a minute, i.e. insure it. Can I mitigate it in some way? Not really. So the fourth thing that you can do is try and eliminate it. And we basically focused quite early on on elimination. That was what, what needed to be done. Um, the BSI, uh, the British Standards Institute, uh, in association with the British Computer Society, did a particularly good job on setting out four very simple rules for handling the dates. So it sounds a wee bit like Isaac Asimov here. Um, rule number one was that no value for the current date would cause any interruption in operation. Rule number two was that the date-based functionality must behave consistently for dates prior to, during, and after the year 2000, i.e. no kludges. Uh, rule three was in all interfaces and data storage, the century and any date must be set, specified either explicitly or by unambiguous algorithms or inferencing rules, i.e. You know, go to four digits. And rule four was year 2000 must be recognized as a leap year. Uh, one of the great problems in this was people realizing leap year was every four years, but not every hundred, except for every 400. Which is and I do recall that which is going Sorry. to be 2100 really interesting. Yes, it will, because everybody will get that one backwards, I think. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, and then the other problem you faced was just sort of the engineering mindset, which I, I, I'm not an engineer, I'm a scientist really, but I like to think I embody some of it. You know, the risk is really public humiliation and the deaths of thousands of people. And the reward, if you get it right, is a certificate of appreciation in a handsome plastic frame. And I know we'll come on to this, uh, and you've probably touched on this in other interviews, but the fact that there weren't too many, there were some, there weren't too many horrific disasters uh, meant that even the plastic frame was begrudged by a lot of people. You got a frame? Oh, no, no. One of the things I, I thought I might touch on that your listeners might find interesting is that during the course of this, I realized quite early on that we had a lot of information sharing difficulties. People were not inclined to share information with each other uh, for fear of incurring liability. So we, we would have, for example, people who would test all of their lifts and say that they were clear, but instead of saying, I've tested this model, that model, the other model lift, they wouldn't share it with other businesses. So it made the total cost higher. We tried to get a mutual insurance company going for risk management, not really for insurance. The idea here was that companies would pool together and share this sort of information with each other because they would share the liability if there had actually been a Y2K operation. Um, there are a lot of examples of this that have been done in other industries. Uh, most famously, I would point to the protection and indemnity clubs in shipping, which work really, really well. And these people will share information. So they would say, for example, um, don't use this paint. Why? I don't know, but the statistics are when we use this paint on the ships, people slip. Or don't pick up people from these ports. Why? Well, they, they turn out to be pirates most of the time. They don't really have to justify it. They're sharing risk information together. Sadly, uh, we were unable to get it going. And funnily enough, um, it's, it's raised its head again in the cyber era where we're looking these days at what do we do about cyber catastrophe insurance? And I've long maintained that had we been able 
to initiate that type of approach 24 years ago, it would have it would have been a great vehicle for handling this sort of cyber risk. But insurance companies are not very well set up after the horse has bolted, the, you know, through the barn door kind of thing. So um, we, it, I think that was a big opportunity missed, and I think it's still an opportunity that we need to grasp. In the U.S., John Koskinen and you know the Y two K czar was able to pass get legislation passed that solved that problem for U.S. companies. They actually took away liability for information sharing. Uh, there were various rules where information sharing of that nature amongst organizations would be seen as breaking monopoly rules and all the rest, and they got rid of that. Now, unfortunately, that was seen by some, especially the conspiracy folks, as a way to protect companies from Y2K lawsuits. That wasn't the intention at all. So they did accomplish it. And if it wasn't for John Koskinen's effort to get that legislation pushed through, the U.S. would have been in dire straits. Now, I mean, they they had more computers than most other company, you know, countries put together, and there was more interlinkage and, and all the rest. Uh, thanks to his efforts, they they managed to get done what, well, Canada and a bunch of other countries were unable to do. So they succeeded, and succeeded rather well. There was, you yeah. know, speaking of liability on the, and stuff, there was talk of blame with respect to Y2K. What was your perspective on the whole issue? Well, there, there was a lot of talk of blame, and uh, and I think it, it even came up really in that very first conversation I had with uh, Robin and Rob, where Robin was sort of, well, who is to blame? Uh, my take on it was that it was really accountants versus the, the computer scientists in many ways, uh, and, uh, and then sort of combined with management, if I can. I mean, one of the things that I, I particularly think of was, well, if these systems were supposedly built for two years or four years, as you and I were talking about, Peter, we didn't think people would continue to use them for decades, then where were they on the balance sheet? If these were vital systems, they should have been on the balance sheet. They should have been amortized, depreciated, and they should therefore have accrued maintenance costs. And those maintenance costs over 10 or 20 years should have meant that people would have gone ahead and invested in converting the systems, but they never did. So uh, I, I happen to be a qualified accountant. I happen to be a computer scientist. And I personally think that uh, in many ways, I would put the balance of blame uh, very much on the accountants who had this enormous intangible asset that they knew their organization completely depended on, but hadn't put it on the balance sheet in any kind of valuation that attracted the type of maintenance that it properly needed. Now there were, a number of other people who blamed the computer scientists claiming that they hadn't undertaken proper software engineering um, and again i contend there's truth in that however as you and i referred to earlier we were being efficient i could have built a, a fully engineered system it just wouldn't have run on the sort of uh, on the sort of substrates that we had in the 70s and 80s so we we had a bit of a problem here which is that a lot of people claimed it was a a computer engineering issue when I think it was actually a long-term view of investment. People are particularly bad, as we know, at investing over the long term, which is why this insurance vehicle was attractive to me at the time to get going. Um, finally, um, I, I might point the finger at management, who ultimately do bear the blame for this, 
And given the, the survey that I referenced uh, a few minutes ago in 1996, and my many conversations with managers, their lack of understanding of a core notion of the business was, was frankly uh, terrifying. And one of the things I've, I've said over many years is that if you want to be a manager, uh, one of the great ways to move forward is, of course, innovation. 50% of innovation for the last 50 years or more has been sticking a computer onto something. <laughs> and so if there's one technical discipline you want to be familiar with, rather than say, I have technical people who do that for me, is to actually become familiar with computing. In fact, if you join Zen, you are required, unless you're otherwise qualified, to complete the EDX CS50 course, which is the old Harvard Applied, Program, Applied Mathematics course that teaches you programming. And the reason for that is not to make you a programmer, it's to make you understand this discipline and how programmers think before you move on and we let you loose on bigger projects. Uh, one of the other things that became interesting in the blame game was, of course, the role of the insurance sector as a whole. Uh, the insurance sector as a whole made mollifying noises and sent out uh, large numbers of notices uh, and even claimed that it would be completely okay with handling business interruption claims. And then suddenly, in November 1998, so 11 months before the, the date, suddenly withdrew cover here in the United Kingdom, uh, really uh, in a peremptory fashion. They just woke up one morning and changed their mind, which of course wasn't forgotten and still isn't forgotten by a number of businesses when insurers like to say that they're there for the long term. And finally, um, I, I pulled together just a collection of, I think, fun snippets, if you don't mind, Peter. I might just read out a few of them. Because well, just show you, I, I don't think many people understand what things were like at the time as it began to reach a bit of a fever pitch. So I have here a, a little snippet from Edward Jordan in Time Bomb 2000, uh, a book that he wrote. Um, I'm not sure I can do the shrill voice accurately. As you reach the front door of the apartment building, you remember that you ran out of cash during the celebrations last night. You stop at the bank on the corner to get a few dollars out of the ATM. The machine gobbles up your bank card and refuses to give cash at all. When you reach the deli on the corner, you find it even more curious that their phone is out of service and they have no electricity. Um, Don Sabatini wrote in Three Steps to Y2K Readiness for the Home and Family. Finally, you're asked to come back to work, still needing gas. You pull into a gas station only to be notified by the attendant that the system monitoring the pumps has malfunctioned due to some bug in the computer. Besides, he says, the credit card authorization machine is still down too. Ned Yankovic, uh, Vankovic uh, in Y2K Made Simple, the power outages lasted for weeks and Sam didn't have enough food and wood to outlast the shortages. His wife, June, lost their baby and almost died from malnutrition and from pneumonia, brought on by the extended period without heat and electricity. Adding to the woes, Sam's daughter Amy went into a deep depression from which she has yet to recover. And I think the most um, the most uh, crazy one was uh, Jason Kelly, Y2K, it's already too late. The gunman forced Mark and the others through the halls of the executive conference center. They passed the Solvang Solutions logo, a golden S2 on the wood paneling. They marched through glass doors into the tile, tile hallway, turned right, proceeded past offices that had bustled with activity just a month prior. Now the offices sat vacant in the darkness brought by the year 2000. Absolutely amazing stuff. I have all those books underneath my desk. <laughs> <laughs>
I'll be very honest. Every time I see a list like that, and I run across them quite often, is I immediately look and see if there's any of my quotes there, and there never have been. <laughs> oh, but I do check. It's disheartening. I do check. So how did we succeed? I mean, look, to remind our listeners, back in the day, back in the 1990s, IT had, I'll be kind, an atrocious track record for delivering things on time. And yet, January the 1st, 2000 came along, and for the most part, we did it. So how did we do that? Well, I hate to pick on any any one individual, but I have pulled together four images for your listeners. And one is actually of Robin Genier himself. Uh, Robin was not a very, uh, is not a very technical man, and I'm sure he's going to listen to this. So I'm not trying to embarrass you, Robin, but his strength was in really creating awareness. Um, I think the second thing, uh, which I've, I've pulled up here, are, are some of the, the facts that the, the press and the media loved this story. It was a simple story by their standards they could get their head around. Uh, and we focused very much on awareness. So we had a, uh, a, a lovely little Millennium Bug uh, logo with a, with a warning sign. And things like the planes are going to fall out of the sky uh, are, are, are all good news, however inaccurate or misleading that they are. Um, and I must say, one of the great things about Robin, I still remember it, which is uh, just as I thought he couldn't come up with yet another angle, because I'm afraid I did find all of this rather prosaic and mundane. It was an obvious computer issue to somebody like me. Uh, at one point when I thought after about two years of running Task Force 2000, he'd come out of something, Robin surprised me. He'd found a vicar who was prepared to work with Task Force 2000, and therefore the Y2K problem was a problem for Jesus, because it was clearly a millennial problem to do with the date of his birth, uh, leaving aside when he was really born. It was just amazing. But awareness was a thing that did it. Uh, the second thing was the nature of the problem. There was a fixed deadline, and everybody in the world had the same deadline. You couldn't wake up and say, well, listen, you know, in France, maybe we could wait till July 2000 before we switch. So what, what, what happened in a timeline sense was uh, we created Task Force 2000 in 1996 and managed to get a little bit of budget out of the government, which was probably more important for the credibility it gave uh, to the program. We also uh, got a lot of money out of the industry. So it was mostly an industry funded program, but industry was not particularly generous. Over four years, Robin and the team I think we spent, well, I know we spent less than a million pounds in total. Um, now, in 1996, <clears throat> we, we had a conservative uh, government here, uh, and the Tories were happy to give a bit of money, which they did, but they weren't particularly keen <clears throat> on, on, uh, on supporting it. They felt that industry ought to do the job. The Labour Party, on the other hand, felt that it would support Task Force 2000 in the press, but when they came into power in 1997, towards the end of 1997, they effectively had a bit of a jibe at the industry and said that we weren't doing enough and that what was needed was Action 2000. Uh, so they created Action 2000. Um, now this one uh, actually spent something like 17 million in its two years of existence, which was an astonishing amount of money to spend just on awareness programs. Uh, meanwhile, we in Task Force 2000 were doing things like I was personally 
on the call center work where people would ring in and if it was late at night I would be picking up calls from people despite being a director of the firm just to just to help out and a lot of the problem we had was calming people down because the government had had overhyped things it was the government that largely promoted the idea that planes were going to fall out of the sky um, and and this was leading to frankly in my opinion a lot of overreaction in a more mundane way again uh, as we went around the city of london most of the financial services firms took it realized that they needed to to do something about it and for a lot of them upgrade was the obvious path they were late on systems like oracle or various accounting systems sage that they were using and they just decided to upgrade to the latest version having made sure from the supplier that they were y2k compliant as the phrase arose and also in 1997 the audit firms ever anxious to find a, a way to check something uh, began to require y2k compliance for their compliance from their clients so that that really really helped a lot um, most of the things that got a lot of the press, for example, the UN and the World Bank's International Y2K Cooperation Center, I don't know, maybe, maybe they did a lot of great things, but I never saw it. Um, it you know, it was, it was almost Johnny come lately, you know, too little, too late. Um, but there were a lot of other things that happened. Uh, funnily enough, I, I would argue that a lot of the bonuses that were out there for things like old COBOL programmers really attracted attention. So you had old programmers ringing up their firms and saying, you know that program that I wrote, uh, what was your name again? Did you work here? Yes, well the program that you that I wrote, you need to have that updated. Uh, and so there was a lot of money making in that. Um, but what, 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 what I guess surprised me, and we, we may come on to this in a, a little later in this conversation, Peter, was that this accurate communication was extremely difficult in what had become a politicized uh, situation with both government and opposition playing games with each other, but also in a commercial environment where every software supplier and consultant was running around screaming Y2K, Y2K. It was very much a chicken little, the sky is falling um, area. But you know, I would argue that for a lot of companies, this is the biggest IT project many of them had ever done. A lot of the companies were unable to locate their source code. Uh, there was definitely a, a shortage of staff for these legacy systems and COBOL skills, which also tilted companies sometimes to replace an old system rather than try and figure out how it had worked. Uh, and staff turnover was extremely high at the time. So in a lot of ways, the solution was, was partially just a complete renovation of IT systems to bring them up to, uh, effectively to the latest version. Yeah, th there's no doubt about it. The the communication wasn't as focused as it could be. And I don't think there's a way around that. When you have a global problem that affects every, every business to some degree, there is no way to have a single voice. I mean, we attempted to do it, but everybody can write a book. Everybody can do a TV show. And focusing the single line of communication was nearly impossible, which brings us to the current situation we're in. Today, politics are getting in the way of all types of solutions. COVID comes to mind. How was Y2K different? Well, as I indicated, um, at, at the time, Y2K was different because of the fixedness of the deadline. This was a, a deadline you couldn't get around. And I think without that, it would have been even more political were that possible on the, some of the 
pictures that I've shared with you, we can see where Labour did back Task Force 2000, and then the minute it was power, it changed its mind. And because this was all an awareness-driven program, likewise, it was a very media-dependent program. And we, we were toys of the media, uh, so much so that hours after uh, the 1st of January 2000, in fact, I think I shared it with you, it was at 10.40 in the morning, suddenly the BBC was claiming this was the bug that didn't bite, uh, you know, close to claiming the whole thing was a hoax. Um, and in many ways, uh, you know, this was a bit like COVID-19. I don't want to stretch the analogy too much, but probably the biggest thing was that the awareness raised the testing. And it was the testing by firms that, that really dealt with it. And the firms, for the most part, although there was a lot of talk about supply chains and supply chain integration, the remedy could be broken down to individual firms. Some of the bigger players, I'm thinking, uh, because at the time I was heavily involved in the defense sector, so if you take British Aerospace, BAE, they were requiring their suppliers to prove that they were Y2K compliant and really didn't care um, how they achieved it. That was their problem. Could they get their audit firm or some other independent testing agency to validate it? Um, so in some senses, you know, the difficulty with this was uh, that we made it look too easy. Um, and I don't think the aftermath has ever really been honest enough. Um, so, you know, there were some very, very real problems. And I, I'll just pick on a few, but the UK Rapier anti-aircraft missile system did fail in a test the following year. Um, a, a, a Swedish uh, nuclear plant was tested before the rollover and its computers shut down the reactor in the summer of two th uh, in the summer of of, uh, of um, 1999 not January 2000 in the Millennium Dome okay you may not worry about it but it's a big icon here in London the error message is all scrolled off the console too fast to read for some reason BP exploration found a fault in all of its offshore oil platforms Fortunately, they went public and said finding this one fault justified our entire Y2K program. 10% um, of Visa swipe card machines were found to fail. Um, and Raycall credit card systems failed in December 1999, despite a major Y2K program by Raycall. So there were, there were real failures out there. Um, but we, we again had this awareness issue where people didn't want to talk too much about the failures. Uh, I, I don't know why, but for, for fear of scaring the horses, but that also meant that in the aftermath, uh, things weren't honest enough. One of the things I, I find interesting is, uh, as, a, as a professor at Gresham College, one of my fellow professors is a lovely man by the name of Martin Thomas. And two years ago, Martin spoke with me that he wanted to look at, you know, was Y2K a hoax? And I said, well, you know, welcome to do so, but I can assure you it wasn't. Uh, and Martin was very, uh, was very clear. He wanted to look at, you know, what, what really happened in Y2K. And he wasn't too sure that we had done all the great saving that we claimed that we had. And one of the things I found interesting was by the time he got to the end of his lecture, he'd convinced himself quite categorically that it was a darn good thing that Y2K had been taken seriously, that the hype had gener generated uh, real reform. Um, I, I guess there's one other thing I'd just like to point out, which is, you know, these types of problems aren't going to go away. 
um, and COVID may be sort of more brought upon us than anything else, but we do have, for example, the issue to do with quantum computing and encryption. So as, as you know, Peter, and many of your listeners, everything in finance and in many other areas too, but everything in finance depends upon encryption. Uh, global finance, even local finance simply won't work. You'd have to go back uh, to pushing paper money around. Uh, and quantum computing, uh, which, is, which is arriving at scale uh, quite soon, we're now seeing applications really being used in the financial services sector since about the middle of this year, genuine applications doing portfolio balancing and things. Quantum computing has been proven. If it could get a little bit larger, it would be capable of breaking the current public key infrastructure. And this would mean that all credit card transactions, all foreign exchange transactions, uh, all wholesale transactions would be vulnerable. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Now, the time frame on this is not a is not known. It could be four or five years away. It could be 25 years away. But most people believe if the quantum computers don't hit some physical limit, encryption will be broken. And we could today move into what are called quantum resistant encryption techniques. And again, as you talk to boards and things, you find that they really don't pay attention because you're unable to give them that fixed deadline. I mentioned earlier that part of the problem with Y2K was we didn't know how our systems evolve. And I'd make the statement today that we still don't. I play the Japanese game of Go. And up until about six years ago, if you'd asked a Go player how long would it take for a computer to beat a, a master, a professional Go player, the answer was always off the cuff, oh, that let 25, 50 years. And then a couple of years ago, AlphaGo came out, and it now beats every single professional player on the planet. It hasn't lost a game since it's perfected itself. And that happened, in my eyes, overnight. One day we didn't have that, and the next day Go isn't worth playing anymore because a computer will beat you every single time, no matter who you are. So I think our estimates about how fast computers develop, whether it's quantum computing or AI or anything else, will always be overestimated. It always happened faster. The opposite of Murphy's laws. Murphy says it'll always take longer. Well, there's an AI law that says, nope, it's always going to be faster. Well, it's very much like, um, I'm sure you know it, uh, Peter, you know, Roy Amara's law. We, we tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short run and underestimate the effect in the long run. And uh, that, that means you do tend to see these sorts of uh, J curves, which go up suddenly, just when you've been saying, oh, people have been talking about quantum computing, it's never arrived, or people have been talking about the year 2000. Peter, it's interesting that Y2K, year 2000, in many ways, made people think slightly differently about the future. It reminds me of a 1993 lecture that Professor Danny Hillis at MIT gave, and he said, and I'm reading here, when I was a child, people used to talk about what would happen by the year 2000. Now, 30 years later, they still talk about what will happen by the year 2000. The future has been shrinking one year per year for my entire life. I think it is time for us to start a long-term project that gets people thinking past the mental barrier of the millennium. I would like to propose a large, think Stonehenge, mechanical clock 
powered by seasonal temperature changes. It ticks once a year, bongs once a century, and the cuckoo comes out every millennium. And this has led to the multi-million dollar Long Now project, building such a clock on Jeff Bezos's Texas ranch. It's a fascinating project to look up, longnow.org, but all inspired in some ways by that uh, short-termism of mankind that Danny Hillis noted. Interesting. How did we do? What was New Year's like? And what were you doing on New Year's Eve? <laughs> what was I doing on New Year's Eve? Well, um, I was sleeping. I'd actually gone to Germany. Uh, my wife is German. Uh, and we watched the celebrations in London from Germany and celebrated in Germany as well. And everything in, in my world, you know, was absolutely fine. There were a couple of people. There was a labor minister who was running around the com command and control center and she, uh, she was unable to find anything wrong. So it, it broadly went really, really quite well. Um, there were some problems though. Uh, there were 15 nuclear reactor shutdowns in Spain, the Ukraine, Japan, and the United States. Um, some of the RVR systems on the, the Nats airfields failed at 4 a.m. on the 1st of January, but that wasn't a particularly big issue. People can take off and land without them. Uh, there were credit card systems rejecting cards, as I mentioned. Uh, the oil pumping station in Yomartalik shut down, cutting off supplies to Istanbul. There were power cuts in Hawaii and some cable television feeds failed. Uh, I'm not sure we missed this, but in the Kremlin, the press office couldn't send an email. <laughs> uh, in New Zealand, uh, there was an automated radio station that kept playing the New Year's Eve uh, 11 p.m. news hour as the most recent. Uh, and in the United Kingdom, uh, the British uh, birth certificates, certificates for newborns initially, uh, initially dated them as 1900. So uh, there, there wasn't a catastrophic uh, element. I, I think the, the nuclear reactors were a bit, a bit uh, scary in the sense that so much money, and not, not that they were terrifying, the shutdowns went smoothly, but what was bad was that so much money had been spent trying to fix them and had missed uh, some of the issues. So it wasn't perfect by any means, but it wasn't a disaster. And the most important thing, uh, at least from my perspective, despite being uh, involved with the MOD then, uh, was that the financial systems went very, very smoothly. Like, uh, leaving the credit cards aside, um, I believe in the United Kingdom, there wasn't a single major issue uh, at all with any of the insurers, the banks or the exchanges that I spoke about earlier. Yeah, there, there were a lot. There were a lot of problems. I was at that point a clearinghouse for problems coming being reported. They would come to me, and I would get them to the Canadian government and a couple of other places. And we received a lot. There's no doubt about it. But they were all, well, trivial things for the most part. A birth certificate that says 1900. You know, no one's going to die because of that. As long as you're going to fix it in a couple of months. We had lots of those types of things, but we had no mission critical ones that were significant enough to report. And then there was the other aspect to all of this. If on January the 1st, 2000, a bank has a Y2K problem, you're not going to phone up the New York Times and report it. In other words, you're going to fix it as fast as you can on the quiet. You're not going to report that your bank has a Y2K problem because that causes a run on the bank. So a lot of the problems were kept quiet. There was no reason to tell anyone. 
and that was done deliberately. And in 2020 hindsight, I'd say that was the right decision. You know, John Koskin and I and other people who were involved in Y2K, we, we often say, you know, we really should have let something break because then people would have realized the fact that we fixed all the things, you know, isn't to our credit. We needed to let something break. We say it in jest, but every now and then. <laughs> what lessons, if any, did we learn? And I always ask it that way. <laughs> yes, the, the if any. Well, we learned that we could spend money. <laughs> the cost globally uh, is difficult to ascertain. And, and it's also mixed in to some degree with people purchasing new systems that they might have purchased a bit earlier, but were bound to purchase anyway. But the estimates fairly reliably pin it at about 300 billion to 500 billion globally, which is actually not that much when you, when you divide it up in a strange way, given, as I said, the importance of computers, but also the fact that this was maintenance that should have been done over the previous 10 or 15 years. Uh, we also found some benefits uh, beyond the avoidance of failure. I think a lot of companies learned a lot more about their dependence on IT, their IT inventory and their supply chains. And I personally noticed this as companies would promote, say, IT people uh, into more senior positions on the board. The professionalism of in-house IT greatly improved um, as well with that, with that sort of board level representation. And frankly, we, we ended uh, sort of 98 and early 99 with an IT system that was much more robust. Um, I think a failed lesson is the, the bit though about software engineering and testing. That is still uh, remains largely a cottage industry, not helped by a, a number of issues to do. The IT seems to get away with no liability uh, for, for its actions. I know there's been a lot of talk about this and personally as a programmer, I like the fact that I'm allowed to build something, but sadly, uh, as IT is becoming more essential to life, uh, I think we're going to be seeing you know, society's going to expect us. I can't write a, a mobile phone app for you, and if it doesn't work when you're in an emergency, uh, surely I, I'm going to wind up bearing some liability for it. How that manifests itself, I don't know. Um, I think our biggest failure, though, was we, we saw this risk coming. And you, you were speaking about COVID-19. I was speaking about cyber. We could talk about asteroids crashing into the earth. We, we still fail to get a holistic approach to societal risks. Uh, and I think that is, um, that, that is a shame. In the UK, one of the, one of the great uh, talking points where I think we did do a particularly good job better than in America is with something called Pool Re, uh, basically in 1992, we had a large bombing at St. Mary Axe, and suddenly the insurance industry didn't want to insure against terrorism. Uh, and the government, in cooperation with the industry, created pool reinsurance, pool re, and that brought the market back in in the er, in early '93. And in fact, we had a second bombing of equal magnitude, pretty much in the same location at Bishopsgate, and the insurance sector sailed through it. And I think we should be looking at these more integrated public-private uh, insurance vehicles. In the United States, they went for something called TRIA, which isn't quite as, as nice as the UK model. It's not a proper insurance model. And we could apply this to a number of areas, including, as I said earlier, um, cyber um, and, and, and in fact, perhaps wider computer outages. So uh, I think we, we, we still have a lot to learn. But Y2K, fortunately, 
because it did end, so to speak, or it ended sort of around the middle of 2000 for sure, um, is a really good case study that you can use when you're trying to convince people that they ought to take these things seriously and that things can get solved. Well, I take one exception. Y2K is not over. The beginning of this year, January 2020, we had half a dozen Y2K problems of some significance. We had all the parking meters in New York City go belly up. They couldn't handle credit cards. We had cash registers in Poland couldn't do anything. We had trains in Europe, Belgium, I think it was. I can't remember off the top of my head. That wouldn't start on January the 1st. And Ooh. all of that was due to the fact that we, well, we didn't follow those four laws of Y2K that you mentioned earlier. They they used a 20-year window that gave them 20 years. And then once we kludged it, we forgot about it. And we didn't go back in and update the 20-year window. So on January the 1st, 2020, it thought it was, um, I don't know, 1920 or something. I don't know the intricacies of the, so the software. And that's going to happen again in 2025. It's going to happen in 2030. It's going to happen in 2050. And then along comes 2100, which everybody's going to get wrong. Uh, I can stand in front of a computer audience today and ask them, is 2100 a leap year? Yes or no? You know, yes, raise your hand. And uh, there will be dissent in the room, which terrifies me. Programmers can't agree whether or not it's a leap year. Hmm. <laughs> it's... Oh, I stand corrected, and <laughs> I guess that just shows that I, I still blame those accountants because if those, if those systems actually date back 20-plus years and you still haven't spent any money on upgrading them, uh, you do have to wonder where they're sitting on the balance sheet. I, I know. It's, it's disheartening, to say the least, some, at times. Uh, any closing thoughts on this Y2K debacle? Yeah, I think there's a general management thought, uh, and that's about deadlines. Uh, back in 1992, I published something called Vision into Action, where I went out uh, with a colleague, Paul Taffender, and surveyed, I think it was about 30 organizations. And what we were looking for were organizations that had successfully changed something. And in management consultancy speak 28 years ago, we wrote up a, a nice thing about a number of actions, but the one that always stuck in my head, the always was there was, if there isn't a crisis, make a crisis. Good leaders find a deadline or they make one up. You gotta get your people's back to the wall. Uh, and sadly, uh, that management technique may be slightly distasteful. You might like to use more carrots or more sticks, but if you really want large scale change, you really, really have to find a deadline. Nothing so concentrates a man's thinking than to be hanged at dawn. <laughs> uh, what are you up to today with Y2K behind you? What are you up to? Well, uh, my, my, I, I, I occupy a number of roles at the moment. So our firm Zien, which was founded in 94, still continues uh, 26 years on. We call it the City of London's leading commercial think tank. We get involved in a whole variety of projects in technology, economics, and finance. We also run a free club for people called the FS Club, which has conducted, I think, 150 webinars this year alone. 
and publishes freely and puts people together who really want to bring technology, economics and finance together for a social purpose. I'm preparing for COP26 in Glasgow next year. Um, and I do a tremendous amount of teaching and writing uh, for various universities. And as you read in my CV, I'm heavily involved in a number of charities uh, of all sorts. But probably uh, this year, the biggest thing for me is I was elected in, uh, in June of 2019 as Sheriff of the City of London. And due to the COVID crisis, the Lord Mayor and his two sheriffs were kindly asked if we would stay on another year to provide continuity by tradition. Uh, we we actually only stay in post for a year. The, sheriff, the post of sheriff goes back to approximately the year 640, so not not, not you know it's, it's it's not quite 1400 years, but it's getting there. And the last time two sheriffs were asked to roll over was in 1228, and so my job has very much been running justice in the city, the central criminal courts being technically responsible for it, although. In reality, there's a much more professional team than a one-year amateur or two-year amateur now playing at it. I'm responsible for supporting the Lord Mayor in his programs around the world. We've reached out to many cities, including meetings with uh, Toronto and the Mayor of Toronto, both here and there. And I'm also responsible for helping to uh, handle kind of the uh, social life of the city, the various livery companies like the World Traders, uh, the 110 livery that comprise the working trades in the city of London. So it's a fascinating role where I get to meet uh, literally thousands of people. In fact, uh, sort of the joke I said was back in March when COVID-19 pretty much curtailed all the official ceremonies and dinners, as you can imagine, and we've moved to Zoom. Somebody asked me, did had I had COVID-19 in March? And I said, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But having met 35,000 people in my first six months in office, it was highly likely I had caught it at some point. Yeah, we've had a few family members. We lost one family member, not immediate family, but still family. Um, we've had one friend and two other close relatives mm -hmm. have come down with it, uh, mild doses. So it's definitely out there. Michael, I want to thank you very, very much for a fascinating discussion. Uh, uh, Folks, our guest today was Alderman and Sheriff Professor Michael Mainelli, Executive Chairman of the Zian Group. And again, thank you very much. Uh, Michael, do you have any final words to anybody? Well, I, I have a final thank you to you, Peter. It's been uh, amazing to be dredging, dredging back uh, over 20 years ago, 24 years ago, at what's ancient history. And I hope uh, some of the folks out there might pick up a lesson or two that will help them improve the world uh, if this is a case study helps you to sell what needs to be done. Thanks again, Michael. Everybody, this was the one of the interviews in the Y2K and Autobiography series. My email is pdauger at technobility.com. I've spelled it out often enough in this series. I don't need to do that again. Website is www.technobility.com. If you're just listening to the audio part of this, there are about 30 other interviews in the on-demand area. The location of the on-demand area is www.vimeo.com. 
facebook.com slash on demand slash Y2K. And I don't know if there are going to be more. I have a couple of other interviews uh, planned and being discussed, and they will arrive when they will arrive. In the meantime, everybody be safe, wear a mask, and the vaccines are coming. Good news all around. Take care, guys.